You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I reviewed The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod, and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. And while all of these episodes will always be free forever... If you'd like to support what I do here, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer, where you can get access to tons and tons and tons of exclusive B-roll episodes, TV and book reviews, movie reaction recordings, commentary tracks, early access to podcast episodes, and previously unreleased content. Um, there is a ton of stuff there. I have a bunch of different reward tiers there. So if you sign up at the $1 level, you get early access to content plus B-roll episodes, which is just me and my co-hosts and friends kind of farting around and discussing a a, a variety of topics. But if you sign up at the $2 level, you get that plus book and TV reviews and reaction recordings. Right now I'm doing an episode by episode review series on Apple TV Plus's Severance season one, which I am absolutely adoring. Um, <laughs> it is, it is right. If you're into science fiction, it's right up your alley there. Um, I also do Stephen King book reviews and everything on there. So uh, that's, those are just the first two levels at the $5 level, you get movie uh, reaction recordings and movie uh, pot- uh, potpourri episodes. So I've been doing these sci-fi duos um, potpourri things on Patreon for the $5 level. So I did a review of Duel and After Yang, and then I did a review of Cube and Identity. And next up, I'm going to be doing a review of Close Encounters of the Third Kind and The Vast of Night. Um, so I have a whole roadmap for that. But anyway, all of that is available at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. You get a recurring monthly charge at the beginning of each month. When you sign up for it, you get charged immediately and you get immediate access to everything on there. So uh, if you have the means and want to hear more of me talking about stuff that I like, check out patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. It's actually a huge, huge help to me <laughs> because there is a lot of work that goes into uh, putting it, putting out three, three different podcasts um, and plus Patreon. So uh, anyway, if you have the means, check it out, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. So today on Anthology, I'm going to be discussing Nothing in the Dark, which is the 16th episode of The Twilight Zone's third season, which originally aired on January 5th, 1962. And as usual, I will be rounding out the episode with a brief non-spoiler review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 24, Dead Storage. Um, so we've got, we've got a bit of stuff to handle today, and... 
Oh, <laughs> we've got a bunch of stuff to handle today. And like in my notes, I have, I was just about to get into um, the plot summary courtesy of uh, Twilight Zone unlocking the door to a television classic. But two things. One, I switched around my notes. So now I'm going to do what I knew before, before I do the plot summary. But also my plot summary, I have a, a picture of the plot summary from the book, but it's cut off in the PDF that I have. So anyway, anyway, so... Um, before I get into the actual episode and everything, I do want to mention that, like I said, I've been doing, um, Patreon reviews for Severance and it's really fun, but I also, in preparation for, uh, some book review stuff that I'm going to do on Patreon, I picked up a new, uh, a, a collection at Half Price Books, uh, the other day, which I'm just really excited about, uh, because it looks freaking gorgeous. It is, uh, the classic H.G. Wells con- collection. It's a very colorful kind of pulp sci-fi, uh, slipcase. And then each book is, uh, paperback with different color schemes and different, like I said, kind of pulp, uh, cover art on it. It, the, it looks absolutely gorgeous. And, uh, basically it's, uh, the time machine and other stories. So the time machine and some short stories, and then I've also got The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Invisible Man, The War of the Worlds, and The First Men in the Moon. So I'm very excited to dig into the to, to these books and then throw some stuff up on Patreon for it. But I'm just really excited because it just – it looks so freaking cool. And like it's July 20-something, 20 24th, I think. And uh, like there's about a month or so um, left of summer. And I'm just – I'm really excited to like kind of sit by the pool and – uh, and read some HG Wells. So anyway, so I, I'm really excited about that. Anyway, so uh, let me go into what I knew about Nothing in the Dark before I watched it for the first time. So uh, on my notes, I have, I'm not sure. Um, like I, all I knew was that it had Robert Redford in it and it had something to do with an old woman. And that's based solely on what my eyes kind of brushed over on the Wikipedia page when I was trying to get my notes and everything together before I watched it. Um, the title Nothing in the Dark really made me wonder if it might have been something similar to The Midnight Sun, maybe something about an abnormal or uncontrollable weather phenomenon. And then also the kind of still image that is associated with this episode uh, that has Robert Redford uh, standing and kind of beckoning Wanda toward him. Um, that made me think that it had something to do with like a biker gang in a weird way. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense whatsoever, but, um, but yeah, I think that I had, cause he's dressed in black and he's in a police uniform, but in the picture, I didn't really notice that or anything, but he, um, it, it kind of, I, I think maybe I got it confused with, uh, what is it? Black leather jackets, I think is a, is an episode that's going to be in the series. I don't know. But anyway. Um, those were, that's what I kind of thought the episode was beforehand, had no idea. So, uh, having said that, let me go into the plot summary, courtesy of the Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. And just so you guys know, I'm going to be spoiling nothing in the dark from here on out. So fair warning, um, if you haven't watched the episode, go watch it, come back and listen to my review. So here we go. Plot summary of nothing in the dark. 
A police officer is shot and wounded outside the front door of an abandoned tenement where a frightened old woman resides. Against her better judgment, she pulls the young man in and nurses his wounds, even fixing him warm tea. She has no telephone to call a doctor. She explains to the young man that Mr. Death is out there, waiting for the opportunity to take her away. In fear of her life, she has to spend she has spent the last few years fending off people whom she feared was Mr. Death in disguise. Late that afternoon, a city contractor barges into her place to inform her that she has to leave. The building has been condemned, and his job is to tear down the old to make room for the new. The contractor leaves, warning her she has just one hour to pack her belongings. Before she can decide what to do, she discovers that her guest went unseen by the contractor, because the young officer is death himself. In an attempt to reassure her that the running is over, he gains her confidence and takes her by the hand. Looking down at her frail, cold body, her fears are put aside. What she thought would come like an explosion comes in a whisper. And in the afterlife, she has an incredible journey ahead. So, starring as Wanda Dunn in this episode is Gladys Cooper, making her first of three Twilight Zone appearances. The next we'll see from her is in Season 4's Passage on the Lady Anne, and some other credits that she had in uh, over the course of her career were for My Fair Lady, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca, which are, if you're in Indianapolis, that's playing... That's I think that's going to be playing at Keystone Art next month, or at the Can Can Theater. The... Can Can Theater in Indianapolis and Keystone Art are doing uh, Alfred Hitchcock uh, birthday kind of celebrations thing thro- things throughout uh, October and even yeah or not October but August. Um, I already saw a Rear Window at the Can Can and it was uh, amazing. That movie is absolutely stunning. Um, and then uh, another credit of Gladys Cooper is one episode of The Outer Limits in 1963 titled The Borderland, and co-starring as Harold Belden. Uh, slash death is Robert Redford, who is, of course, a legendary actor and director. He won Best Director at the Oscars for Ordinary People. His credits are vast and include Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, All the President's Men, The Natural, The Sting, uh, some of the Marvel movies. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, yeah, it's, it's, he's, he's legendary. Um, this was his only episode of the Twilight Zone, though, and he, or, or although he did appear in a 1960 Playhouse 90 episode that was written by Serling called In the Presence of Mine Enemies, which sounds like really intense. That episode is about uh, a Jewish man in a war, in, in the Warsaw Ghetto who plots revenge against the German officer who raped his wife, I believe. So pretty, pretty uh, intense. Um, And then rounding out the cast as uh, the contractor is R.G. Armstrong. This was his only episode of The Twilight Zone, but some of his other uh, credits included Predator, Children of the Corn, Dick Tracy, and he was also in five episodes of the short-lived X-Files spinoff Millennium. And uh, in terms of the sci-fi anthology realm, he was in one episode of Tales of the Unexpected in 1977. And writer for this episode was George Clayton Johnson. This is his fifth of seven Twilight Zone episodes. We previously saw his work in A Game of Pool, and next we'll see from him is in the upcoming episode, Kick the Can. And rounding out the talent rundown is director Lamont Johnson, 
who uh, makes his third directorial effort out of his eight total Twilight Zone episodes. Previously, we saw his work in just a couple of weeks ago in Five Characters in Search of an Exit. Or was that last episode? No, that wasn't last episode. What was last episode? Um, I don't remember. Anyway, actually, that's going to really bother me. Um, But... Uh, because it, there's no way he did three consecutive episodes, although there's a piece of trivia here, um, about this episode. So anyway, oh no, Quality of Mercy was last week. Sorry. Okay. So yeah, he did five characters in search of an exit. And then next we'll see from him is actually next week's episode. One more pallbearer. Um, yeah. So, um, I do have some trivia it just I just have one piece of trivia, but I'm going to say that up front now because I usually wait until the end of the episode to kind of my, the end of my review. But since I only have one piece of trivia and it kind of ties into the episode itself, um, I am going to go ahead and share uh, my my piece of trivia now. So <laughs> the piece of trivia I have is that this episode was actually um, – it was filmed in 1961 in uh, April or May 1961, and it was originally going to be the season finale of season two, but it was kind of taken or it was shelved and replaced by the obsolete man. Um, the uh, there was, uh, according to uh, Martin Graham's Jr., there was like a memo or some something that Buck Houghton wrote uh, that. Uh, said that the reason behind that was that they wanted to have um, a couple of episodes kind of banked for season three so that they could really come out swinging uh, when, when season three went into production. So as such, this episode is kind of interesting because when you watch it, it does not have the opening title and in credits and everything. Like it doesn't have the, uh, the title, the title screen that comes up after Serling's monologue or after his opening narration. Um, it just goes into just the episode, like the seasons one and two episodes did. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And it was funny because like I, I had read that piece of trivia. Like I knew that that was, that that, that was the case. And then, like, I watched this episode several times, and I was, after, like, the third time, I was like, wait, I didn't see the title. Like, why didn't they, why didn't they do that? And it took me, like, a few minutes to realize, oh, it's because this was originally shot for season two. So, anyway, um, let me get into my review of Nothing in the Dark. And so, we open on this very kind of, it's this really interesting, um, nicely detailed set of this tenement apartment where it seems like it's a little rundown. Um, there's a lot of disheveled things in, in the space. Um, and we see that the windows are boarded up and we open on it and we see, or we hear rather, uh, people outside. We hear at least one person outside and we see that the snow is falling. So we know that it's kind of winter time. It's cold. Um, which also like my running thing throughout this review that I'm going to try to be a little bit, um, (laughs) be a little bit, uh, I don't know, uh, level with is that this episode is really bleak for as uplifting and hopeful as it is at the end or positive as it is at the end. It's really bleak to me. And I'll try to kind of go into detail as I go through the review, but a, a bit of bleakness for that is the fact that, like we find out later in the episode that the that the building is about to be demolished 
and that the gas man has come previously to that like she like she is like out an hour away from losing her home and so she must not have any power like she must not have any electricity any like air conditioning nothing she she must have nothing in there because i mean if that's the day that they're demolishing it so just the thought that like okay um the windows are boarded up there's breaking glass outside i don't know if there's like it, it can't be that well insulated but with it snowing outside just this poor old woman is just kind of sitting in this in this in this apartment presumably freezing um it's just it's really kind of kind of sad and uh depressing so anyway we see wanda she is asleep in bed and like at first i thought that someone broke the window and was trying to get in and my immediate thought was like wow that is that is actually horrifying like that idea of an isolated person alone having someone attempt to break into her home but that wasn't the case. I think that it was just crunching glass from the man outside, which I think was was Harold. Um, but I can't. I couldn't really tell. It didn't really make much sense. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter because all of it's a ruse by death anyway. Like he's just getting the getting things into position to where uh, he can get Wanda to let him in and. Um, allow him to coerce her into dying. <laughs> um, so like I said, the set design is really nice and really well done. Um, this is basically a bottle episode. There's really just one location. Uh, there is only one location. We never go outside of the apartment and just the detail of it is really, uh, well done and pretty cool. Um, and there's also like this frequent, this frequency of showing Wanda behind bars, um, like behind the bars of her bedpost. And I think that that's really interesting. Like there are multiple times in the episode where she is either the shadow of the, of the, um, almost crib like bed, but the shadow of the bars are kind of crossing over her face or at the, toward the end when she's talking to the contractor, like she's literally like holding her hands, uh, like it's a prison, like it's, like it's a jail, um, and she has her head kind of like in between two of the slats. Um, very, very interesting and evocative of the fact that she's in a prison of her own fear and paranoia as kind of hokey and weird as that would sound. It's true. Like she is, she is a victim of her own fear and her own, uh, um, unwillingness to confront her mortality. And I just thought that that was a really interesting kind of visual metaphor, so, uh, yeah, at this point I see that the man is standing outside. It's weird. Cause like, I presume that it's, that it's Harold cause he has like a, a police officer's cap, but that cap goes away completely. It's nowhere to be found in the rest of the episode. And he's kind of like, he's kind of like crouching and then kind of popping back up. I didn't really know what was going on. Um, because we don't see any other person, um, and so Wanda goes up to the door and then kind of relaxes. And when she relaxes, that's when we hear the whistle, like the policeman whistle and gunfire. And then we hear him crumple in front of the, in front of the door. We also hear a car screeching off in the distance. So the gunman has left, um, which of course, none of that matters because it's not real. <laughs> so, uh, which isn't a criticism or anything. I'm just saying like, I, I'm, not going to bother thinking too hard about it because it doesn't really have a bearing on the plot as far as uh, the actual plot element of it is concerned. It just has this uh, 
it's all circumstance to get death in the door. So, uh, Harold is moaning and yelling that he's a policeman and, uh, that he is, he's shot and he needs help. And she says, she says through the door that he's lying and that she knows who he is and what he is. And it's really, it's really interesting to me upon repeat viewings of this episode, because he's taking on this persona of an injured and dying man so that she can relate to him. Like, I don't think he actually says the words, but basically the underlying uh, thing with everything that he says is, I don't want to die. Like, I don't think he actually says that, but she says that about herself several times through the episode. So the kind of inference of him, you know, dying literally on death's door, um, is to kind of coerce her into letting him in and getting her into position to accept his hand so that she can go into the afterlife because he is, under this kind of persona or he's doing this performance of someone who doesn't want to die who's someone that she can relate to so that's kind of uh kind of interesting again before we get to the opening narration though i've got to say this is such a strangely depressing and dark episode for me and i'm really going to try my best to explain as i go through it but it's just it is so bleak to me in a weird way and it is is in such contrast to the uplifting ending. Um, so like I said, I'm going to try my best to really kind of, kind of parse out my thoughts there, but just kind of keep in mind, this is a pretty dark episode, um, in my opinion, and I'm excited to really dig into it. But for now, here is Rod Serling's opening narration for Nothing in the Dark. An old woman living in a nightmare. An old woman who has fought a thousand battles with death and always won. Now she's faced with a grim decision, whether or not to open a door. And in some strange and frightening way, she knows that this seemingly ordinary door leads to the Twilight Zone. All right. So um, what I kind of learned from that is that the woman is faced with the choice of opening the door and helping the man live or letting him die. Um, which I thought that that was going to kind of be the prevailing, um, I thought that that was going to be kind of the prevailing thing about the episode, the prevailing, um, I don't, I don't know the, the kind of prevailing theme of the episode. Um, because I, I kind of thought that it was all about her paranoia. I thought that it was going to be all about her paranoia and that I thought that it was going to reveal that there was a like an alien invasion or something like that, some reason for her to distrust all of humanity. There's not, and that's fine. Um, but I also thought that it was about prejudices as well. Um, that's what I thought it was uh, going to be about. But alas, it is about the fear of the unknown and fear of death, fear of mortality, aging, all of that. And it's really fascinating to me how the episode makes death the most compassionate character in the entire episode. And it's using the character and the concept of death and a specter of death as a vessel for the afterlife rather than a grim reaper. And I find that to be really interesting um, in contrast to just the absolute darkness of the character of Wanda, which I'll talk about, I promise. But it's just it's so bleak and depressing to me. So anyway, um, 
we come back from the opening narration. She opens the door with the chain on and we see Robert Redford laying in the snow, uh, saying, unless you help me, I'm going to die. He's, he's, you know, groaning in pain. Um, and Wanda says, don't say that it isn't fair. You're trying to trick me. And I find that really interesting because the distrust is interesting since she's right. She's absolutely right. He is trying to trick her. But on the other hand, he's not trying to trick her in order to kill her in like a malicious way, which is a weird thing to say. Like, yeah, he's not trying to kill her in a malicious way. Um, he's just trying to kill her. Um, but no, he's, he's not deceiving her to get her to, uh, die prematurely is, is how I would say it. Um, He's trying to trick her in order to gain her trust and convince her to come around to the idea of dying and to make her understand that death isn't the end and that there's something more and that it is her time. And I find that to be a really interesting way of uh, kind of delving into the whole death thing. Like death is a character that's been in the Twilight Zone in the first half of the series uh, numerous times. And with varying, uh, in various ways, um, but here is just, uh, and most notably, um, Murray Hamilton, uh, in, in One for the Angels, but this is slightly, I don't know, it's different because it delves more into the, the human aspect of it, the human, uh, the human condition of facing your mortality, um, and it would be easy to kind of write it off as, well, she's old, she should die. <laughs> like it, that's not to sound crass or anything or sound like too negative, but like it would be easy to write it off as her ignoring the fact that it's her time rather than it exploring the actual overall themes of, you know, um, of it being your time and of, you know, living your life, which is again, what I'm going to kind of get into in terms of the bleakness of the episode, but that's for here in a little bit. But basically we get, uh, Ro Robert Redford says his name is Harry Belden. He's a police officer. He's been shot. He's injured. He's going to die if she doesn't help. And there's this really cool camera technique. Um, we have, we have Wanda opening the door, but having the chain on. So it's just opened a crack and as as Harold is kind of uh, pleading with her, the camera zooms in through that entrance, through the very, very small entrance of the door that we can see through um, into a close up on Robert Redford. And I just thought that, that was a really cool just just uh, camera movement. I thought it was really good. So he says he asks her to call a doctor. She says that she doesn't have a phone. And then she says, I'd have to unlock the door. You can't ask me to do that. I don't want to die, which honestly, like seeing this in 2022, um, it kind of resonates in a, in a weird twisted way with 2020 and COVID lockdowns and not being able to leave and not without fear of, you know, potentially catching a highly transmissible, um, uh, virus that had, that we weren't, uh, uh, prepared for really. Um, so that kind of resonated in a little way, like very, very lightly. Um, but yeah, so anyway, he continues groaning and, and begging her to let him in. Um, and he says in this weird, like kind of 
full of compassion way, like, I don't understand why you're going to let me die. And it's not, it's not in this, uh, it's not in this, uh, it's not in any sort of, um, angry way. It is still has that, it still has that kind of calm and cool, um, compassion at it. And uh, like, I haven't said this yet, but I love Robert Redford's performance in this episode. It is absolutely fantastic. Um, as well as Gladys, uh, Cooper, I think was her name. I'm scrolling up and then I'm going to lose my spot in my notes. Yeah. Gladys Cooper. Um, so anyway, I, I love the, the kind of two hander aspect of the episode between these two performers is really, really fantastic. Um, and Robert Redford is so charming and disarming. And I think that that is a brilliant performance given the character as being death. And it's, it's really interesting. So she decides she well she says that it isn't fair to her but she unlocks the door and opens it and lets him in and then we get kind of i think at that point do we get a cut to commercial um i think so and then um we see that oh oh harold passes out and she touches him and realizes she's still alive and here's where i think the more gloomy aspect of the episode kind of resides she touches him and realizes she's still alive, which means that he's not death in her eyes. He, uh, obviously, he is, but in her eyes, it means that he's not death and that he's safe. So he br- she brings him into the into the home, and so there, like that. That's what it is. That's what that episode or what that moment is all about. But to kind of dig a little bit deeper into it, it is a little bit bleak for me and kind of depressing because this is a woman who has avoided human contact for years. And in doing so, she is living a lonely existence. She is living this isolated, completely alone, free from like human interaction because she is afraid that death is at every corner. She's afraid that death is coming after her. It's a really interesting concept, and I'm not saying this to criticize the episode. I'm just saying that this is a very bleak episode um, by all accounts. But she, in, in this moment, she kneels down and touches Harold and realizes she isn't she isn't dead. And that is first, it's, it's a big step for her because it is completely out of the norm for her. It's completely unsafe of her to do that in her eyes. But... It's bleak and depressing because there's this slight hopefulness in that moment. Like she, she has this hope in her that like, oh, maybe everything isn't so bad. Maybe, maybe death isn't after me or, or maybe even though he's not death, maybe that means that it's not at every corner. And it's depressing because Wanda was kind of wasting her life hiding from death. And it's just this moment of, of experiencing human connection just a physical human touch and it not killing her is, is really depressing because she has wasted years of her life hiding away. Um, so that, I don't know, that's kind of, um, that's, that's kind of a bleak read of it. But then on the other hand, the again the kind of depiction of death as a compassionate entity in this episode is really it, it kind of counterbalances that underscored or undercurrent of bleakness because in that moment he didn't take her he is death but he did not take her 
when he clearly could have, um, but he didn't take her in that moment because he wanted her to understand. He wanted to bring her to the moment where she makes the choice to die, which I think is really, really interesting and fascinating. Like I said earlier in the episode, it is indicative of like it's showing death as a compassionate figure instead of like a grim reaper. And I just find that to be really, really satisfying. Um, so she brings him into the house and, uh, my immediate thought as a huge Stephen King fan, I thought, is she going to misery him? <laughs> Cause like at that point I didn't know that it had anything to do with death or the specter of death or anything. Um, so I kind of thought that this was going to be like the thing, one of the things that laid the groundwork for Stephen King to write misery, but it's not, um, so basically, I was thinking that it was going to be similar to The Howling Man, but it's more like one for the angels, which is fine. So uh, as she is uh, kind of nursing him back to health, we see that Harold is feeling better and says that the doctor is going to come and then he'll be out of her hair. And again, this is another aspect of the episode that makes it pretty depressing for me um, because he has that moment where he's like, you didn't call the doctor. And she said, no, there's no one like I couldn't, I don't have a phone. Everyone else has moved away and everything. I can't, um, I can't leave. I can't call the doctor. Um, but what is depressing about it, what makes it very bleak to me is that Wanda is seemingly great at taking care of Harold. There's like, she has nursed him back to health. Granted it's, you know, he's death. He's putting on a show. He's probably, you know, probably wasn't her doing and everything, but, in the context of the episode, she is great at taking care of him and she gives him tea. She gives him food. She, she, you know, she's taking care of him and it just, it gives this impression that when she's in the company of people, she has purpose and she's driven and everything. Um, and it's something that she's been lacking for many years at this point, specifically because she has been waiting, um, and evading, uh, evading death at every turn. So because she's been evading death, um, she hasn't had a chance to interact with people or have people over or, or, you know, take care of people. And it's just, um, it's just a very, it makes the episode slightly tragic without making the source of that tragedy a direct lesson in the episode, which is something I can't, there's something I'm kind of struggling to, to kind of, um, uh, resolve in my brain a little bit. So, um, so yeah. So anyway, she says that she can't take the chance of letting in anyone else, like letting in the doctor, which again, felt like it was going to be a captive story, but she goes on to say that it's because she's afraid of death. She's afraid of Mr. Death. Um, and, she says, uh, everyone she meets, she fears is death. And, um, that I find really interesting as well. Like I was kind of like, okay, this is, this is where it's going. This is, this is definitely satisfying to me. <laughs> um, so she talks about how, uh, like last week, um, Last week, Death came to the door and said he was from the gas company. Uh, next, he was a contractor with the city. She's saying all of these people that are coming to the house specifically to tell her to leave because they are going to demolish the building. 
And I found that to be really interesting because she has this delusion that death is around every corner, and that delusion is clouding her from the truth of the impending loss of her home. And I don't know, it kind of feels like that obsession, that her obsession with hiding from death is like maybe actually a defense mechanism uh, to not confront the fact that she's losing her home and everything is about to change for her. Of course, her obsession with death pre-tapes, predates the uh, condemning of her home and everything, but I kind of feel like it's still worth noting that Wanda is so focused on escaping death that she can't help uh that she's so focused on escaping death that she can't confront the very real situation that she is facing um and i kind of think that that would have been an interesting angle for the episode to explore except for it being honestly being just the exact same kind of ending as one for the angels it's about death taking uh one of the like taking the protagonist of the episode and then that's it. I kind of wish that it would have done something different. Like maybe, maybe that I kind of wish that this episode would have been more about her reluctance to change in her sentimental value or whatever that she has in her home and that she wants to start a new life. I don't know. There's something there, but I don't know. But anyway, so Harold says, Harold says like, oh, so death is one man and he's responsible for all the, like one man like you and me, and he's responsible for everyone's death. And it's like, uh, there's people die every day. How can one man be in all those places at once? And I thought that was kind of funny because that's just like the Santa argument. Um, and everyone knows Santa's real. But uh, again, I really like how calming Robert Redford is in this episode. He is so, he has just this, very, um, not authoritative. He has this very calm presence and very compassionate really in the performance. It's like, he's so charming that (laughs) the words that he says, some of the things that he says, like, how can one man be in all those places at once? He says that so genuinely and with such care in his voice for her, uh, what is pretty much her delusion, um, that, if he wasn't so charming, it would come across as slightly condescending, but it doesn't at all. And it's really just really, uh, really good performance. So she then goes on to tell him about her history with death. And she tells the story about her being on a bus and seeing an old lady knitting in front of her a long time ago. And then a young man got on the bus and sat beside the woman knitting, uh, despite there being empty seats. Um, he didn't say anything, but, uh, she says that his presence upset the woman in the seat. And when she dropped the yarn, his fingers touched hers when, when he picked it up for her and then he got off the bus and then the woman died. So there's a lot of detail there that I feel is pretty interesting. And, uh, and it's conveyed very well by, uh, Gladys Cooper. Um, and I just, I like that as like a singular anecdote because then she goes in to say, uh, she goes on to say she's seen the man over the years and he appeared whenever someone close to her died and that she's the only one who could see him. Um, and she's seen him in crowds. And once she saw him as a soldier, as a, as a salesman, as a taxi driver, basically she's seen him, uh, she's seen death in places where you wouldn't notice unless you were looking for him. And she goes on to say that she was, like I said, she was the only one that could see him and that uh, she could see clearer than the younger people could and that it was because she was getting old and her time was coming. 
And uh, she also says that her, his face is always different and she can never be sure when kind of when Robert Redford kind of challenges her for that. Um, and it's again, it's really depressing because he says like, well, can he get you when you go outside? If, if, if he can be anyone, he can be anyone. And she says that she hasn't been outside for years. And again, COVID lockdown, <laughs> like it resonates in a, in a certain way, uh, these days, but she says that like he, he, they have this back and forth where he's like, well, what kind of life is that? Like, like, you can't be living a fulfilling life by just staying inside and everything. And she says, if I don't live like this, I won't live at all. And at that point, that moment, I was like, oh, I bet Robert Redford's death. I bet that he is death in this episode. Um, and again, this depressing aspect comes into play because she talks, she starts wistfully um, remembering what it was like when she was young and saying that she was young once she loved doing outdoor things. People said that I was pretty and that being outside would ruin my complexion and everything, but I always loved being outdoors and doing outdoor things. And I don't know, just that bitterness mixed with the wistful memory is so depressing to me. Um, because then she goes and says, I've always hated the dark and the cold. I'm old. I've, uh, I've lived a long time, but I don't want to die. And I, I would rather live in the dark than not live at all. And, oh, it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking and depressing and sad. Um, because she is resigning herself to a life that's not that great. <laughs> that doesn't have like any worthwhile aspects to it, specifically because she does not want to die. And that's where I think the theme of the episode is really pretty strong in that it's about the fear of the unknown, the fear of, of, of moving on and everything. It's in, in this kind of complacency with how things are, I guess, in a, in a certain read of it. But, um, but yeah, it just, it just, it kind of just seems so depressing to me. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, it kind of seems like kind of, kind of in the macro of it is that like, if we let our fears and anxieties dictate our life, is our life actually worthwhile? Which again, is a very uh, nihilistic and sad and depressing kind of viewpoint. Um, but it is kind of, I kind of feel like this episode could have been or would have been maybe a bit stronger if the central character, if Wanda was a younger woman and the entire theme of the episode was her, her shielding herself from death. Um, and then coming out the other side by being, um, kind of not, not as worried about death and choosing to live her life. I think that that would have been a more powerful episode. Um, but, in any case, this was this, it was still pretty good. This was still a pretty good episode. Um, so then after this, we get, uh, she sees someone at the door and then there's a knock at the door. Harold kind of nods at her to go answer it. And I found that to be kind of interesting because he's kind of, in a sense, she, he's kind of coercing her to open the door. Um, and even with the knowledge that he is death, it's not a malicious thing. It's all in service of making her understand and feel more comfortable. And I find that to be really interesting. 
Um, so the man is the contractor who says that he's got his orders. I can't fool around any longer. And then he just bursts through the door, breaking the chain and everything, which at first I thought, holy crap, that's, that's pretty intense. But then he goes on to explain that, you know, they're an hour away from demolishing the building. Um, so yeah, so then that's a piece of dramatic, uh, a, a bit of a dramatic moment because when he bursts through the door, she collapses onto the ground. And, uh, the man comes in, kind of puts his head on her head or, or, or hand on her head or neck. Um, and then it cuts to a commercial. And so like, I thought for a second, I was like, I wonder if she's dead. Like, what if he's death and she, he just killed her by touching her. Um, and I, obviously that wasn't the case, uh, but I thought it would be an interesting change up. I have no idea how it would, would have played out or anything, but anyway, so the contractor has put her in in the bed and wakes her up, and he's rubbing her hand. Um, and she wakes up and says, "And still I live." Um, kind of dramatically, like she's a little obsessed with age and and her her mortality and everything, which is fine. But uh, there's a car honking outside, like really honking. Okay. Anyway, um, so when she looks at him and the camera cuts back to him, his smile looks slightly intense. Like the camera kind of lingers on him for half a beat too long. And I feel like it shows us her perspective of the contractor and of people in general, like she's fearful and everything. This is still honking. What the hell? Okay. The honking has stopped. So anyway, um, he says that he is there to demolish the building and that the building is old and dangerous and as it has to come down to make room for a new one. And that's a pretty clear metaphor for aging and mortality. And he even kind of puts a button on that by saying that that's life lady. Um, and while he's explaining it, while he's saying these words, she is literally behind bars on her bed. And I just think that that's pretty interesting. So as he's going through that monologue about how the building is old and dangerous and it has to come down, that's also kind of a bleak kind of ageism kind of thing, <laughs> like, because it's a metaphor for humans, really, like, like the contractor is kind of the human embodiment of death. <laughs> like it's a human metaphor for death um, because he is there to take away old decrepit buildings so that they can make room for new ones. Um, so I don't know. I thought that that was kind of a weird, weird connection, but um, he then kind of says, well, people think I'm a destroyer, but I'm actually helping improve the world and everything. And I, that kind of, again, seems like the human counterpoint to, to death with a capital D. Um, and I also found that that was kind of an interesting way to further lull her into understanding what's to come, um, in a certain, certain sense. Um, yeah. So anyway, so he goes on to say that when a tree falls, another one comes up and sprouts from the ground in the same spot. And I, again, bleak and depressing because that's clearly a metaphor for, you know, uh, reproduction and, um, procreating and presumably Wanda has no children. So it's even more bleak and depressing that her life has been spent evading death and she hasn't lived because she's in constant fear of dying. And presumably she does not have any family, to remember her after she dies. And I just feel like, I feel like that, 
that in and of itself is a is is a criticism that I have for the episode. Like that is an actual like issue that I have with the episode is that we don't get anything, any indication of what her life is up until that point, except for you know the memory of her loving to loving being outdoor outdoors. And I kind of I, I kind of wish that there was a little bit more to her um, than than what we get. So um, at this point, I. <laughs> <laughs> I I thought, oh, Harold is uh kind of just not doing anything in this scene. Um the contractor's just kind of saying his saying his whole piece and everything, and the camera is is clearly not showing us um uh Harold's space in the room. Um and like in my notes I have because he's deaf and the demo man can't see him. Um and then immediately I was like, ha, I knew it. Um because he can't see him and Harold is deaf. And I kind of wish that there was, if they were going to conceal that a little bit better, I think that that would be a little more, it would have been a little better if they, if they worked to conceal that a little bit, a little bit harder, like show, I don't know, have Harold like fall asleep or something. I don't know. But, uh, yeah. So I want to kind of just break away from this a little bit and talk about, again, another bleak and depressing aspect of this. And that bleak and depressing aspect is the contractor's perspective on the entire episode. That's another angle of the episode that is bleak and depressing. So he's paid to do a job, to demolish a building. He knows that there is a sole, old, reclusive woman staying there uh, who has refused to vacate the premises and before getting the police involved, he tries to get her to leave. Like an hour before demolition, he tries to get her to leave, presumably because he doesn't want to cause any trouble for her. And when he comes to get her out on demolition day, she's still unwilling, but then she speaks to an empty bed and tells the contractor that Mr. Belden is a policeman, which means nothing to the contractor. And then, like just the thought of after, like I'm I'm thinking about like after the episode, after the episode, presumably the contractor goes back to goes back to uh, her apartment with the police, presumably, and comes back to find her dead body in bed. And I don't know. It, it just seems like so depressing to think about that from the contractor's point of view, that this old woman dies moments before her home is condemned and demolished and everything. Um and and the last interaction she has with another human being is this man trying to get her to leave. It just seems just so dark and depressing. Um, yeah. But anyway, so the contractor leaves and Wanda asks why Harold didn't help her. And that's when she realizes that he's death. And he says, look in the mirror, Wanda, which I thought was a very nice touch because that's the first time he or anyone in the episode says her name. And I felt like that was a really good reveal, and I really liked how it was foreshadowed in Rod Serling's opening narration, because in his opening narration, he's looking in the mirror, and the camera is kind of focused on the reflection in the mirror, and then it zooms out or pans over uh, to see that he we're actually seeing a reflection, because he's like looking off to the side. Um, so I, I like how that was kind of good foreshadowing for the uh, reveal. So... He's not in the reflection and Wanda says, you tricked me. It was you all the time. And she asks him why and why, why was he nice to her and why, 
uh, like she said that the moment you can come, the moment, the, the moment, the moment you came in, you could have taken me, but you were nice. You made me trust you. Why? And I really, again, Robert Redford as Harold slash death, he is so compassionate in his performance here that I find it really, really compelling. So he tells her that he had to make her understand. And then he goes on to say, like, am I really so bad? Am I really so frightening? Which felt like he was gaslighting her in a sense. Um, but then right after that, he's like, the running's over. It's time to rest. And that, like, calming and soothing way that he plays the role is just so, so satisfying and makes it it's so comforting. And I really like that because that's kind of the whole point of the episode is the comfort of death. Um, and death as a vessel for the afterlife instead of a grim reaper. Um, it's just, and, and it's because of his performance and, in the way that he, um, the way that he, uh, gives those lines and the way that he performs those lines in this role, it just, it doesn't feel like gaslighting. It doesn't feel like man- manipulation. It doesn't feel malicious. It just feels very natural, very calming and and protective in a sense um yeah so i just i really liked it um so she's still resistant and says i don't want to die and all he says is trust me and then this is something i found interesting he says mother give me your hand which i don't understand fully (laughs) like i really don't understand the significance of him calling her mother um, I thought for a moment, like maybe this iteration of death meant to was meant to represent a son that she had. Um, but I don't I couldn't detect anything else in the episode to kind of pick up on that. So what I kind of landed on is I think or I feel like it was maybe a term of endearment um, because he's death. He's eternal. But when addressing Wanda, he does so by referring to her as mother. Um, as someone in like authority or, or, uh, referring to her as his elder, I kind of feel like that's, that's what, that's what the episode was getting at. That's what that, the meaning behind him calling her mother was. I could be wrong. If you know, please let me know. But I kind of feel like that's a, a, a sign of respect and a term of endearment, uh, to kind of show that he, also kind of giving control to her like he is you know it's up to her to whether or not to take his hand and to die um and that she's in control so i don't know i think that there's something there but he she takes his hand and again he's so calming and reassuring um he says see no shock no engulfment no tearing asunder um and i love this kind of final line that she says uh to him um she says, what will happen? When will we go? And again, I, I said this when we when I talked about the passersby episode, but this gave me very, very strong, uh, strong vibes of Lost series finale, which plays with a lot of these same concepts and everything um, and is just a beautifully well done piece of television. Lost series finale is phenomenal. Um, yeah, I, I will stand by it to until, until the day that Robert Redford asks me to take his hand. So, um, so as bleak and depressing and sad as this episode has been for me, 
I really love this moment for her because she asks, what will happen? When will we go? And he just motions for her to look at the bed and she looks over, sees her laying, seeing, sees herself laying peacefully with her hands on her, uh, across her stomach or chest. And it's clear that she's dead. And he says, we've already begun. And like that, I, I just love that, especially with Robert Redford doing this whole compassionate performance. It's, it's absolutely beautiful, really. Um, so it kind of comes around. I, I kind of come around to it because I, not that I, not that I found that bleakness that by all accounts, I could have been putting into the episode myself. It could be, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but, um, the counter of that, the kind of positive, upbeat energy of that, that she's going to have a, a fruitful afterlife, um, is pretty, pretty, and pretty satisfying. Um, so then they walk out the door and we see them kind of walking across the, um, the, uh, the street or the sidewalk and they're kind of, they're talking pleasantly. And I think that that was a really nice image to end on. And then we get the closing narration from Rod Serling, which I will play right now. There was an old woman who lived in a room and like all of us was frightened of the dark, but who discovered in a minute last fragment of her life that there was nothing in the dark that wasn't there when the lights were on. Object lesson for the more frightened amongst us in or out of the twilight zone. All right. And yeah, so that is, uh, nothing in the dark. Um, overall it was okay. Um, my, my initial response was that it was okay. And it felt kind of like a rehash of the passersby, except instead of revenge, it's this fear of dying. That's that permeates throughout the episode. Um, and again, it was very bleak in a certain sense that she's lived her life fearing the unknown and fearing death. Um, and it's resulted in her being a recluse and distrustful of other people. And I found it just a little depressing to think that she missed out on years of happiness because she was afraid of dying. Um, but it does end in an uplifting fashion with her, despite her spending her twilight years running from death, she now has found peace in the afterlife, which is reassuring and positive and everything. Um, but also I do just kind of wish that we had a little bit more detail about her life and, and who she was because without, like we get the one, the one line, the one little monologue about her, um, her, her youth and how she was, uh, people said that she was beautiful and that she loved being outdoors and doing things outdoors and everything. Um, that's, that's fine. But I kind of wish that there was given that, given that the contractor, um, goes on this whole, this whole, um, monologue about, uh, destroying the old and bringing out the new and building new on top of it and everything seems like it's such a clear metaphor for procreation and, and leaving behind, you know, relatives and children and everything to remember you and, and like share your legacy and everything. Um, we don't have any knowledge of her in that respect. So it kind of seems like a little bit, uh, a little bit of an empty, empty metaphor there that isn't completely connected. But overall, I thought that nothing in the dark was very solid. I enjoyed it. Um, I thought that 
the performances were what really made it for me. And that, that by all accounts, positive ending was really uh, much more satisfying than I expected it to be, um, given how bleak and uh, dark I found most of the subtext in the episode to be. So, yeah, so that is my review of Nothing in the Dark. Um, yeah, uh, let me know what you thought of this episode. And again, check out Patreon, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Um, yeah, I am going to now round out this episode of Anthology with a bonus review non-spoiler of course of dead storage from science fiction theater season one so i'm gonna play this music now storage uh aired on october 8th 1955 and the plot summary courtesy of um imdb is arctic workers discover a frozen mammoth which is quickly quickly transported to a research institute upon thawing and with a little galvanic shock investigations take an interesting turn this episode was directed by jack herzberg and written by stuart jerome with a story by credit by ivan tours and it stars virginia bruce walter coy and robert h harris um so as is usually the case with science fiction theater it begins with a pre-show kind of scientific um experiment or demonstration i should say in which uh this episode truman bradley uh shows us this um uh frozen fish this like this fish that is encased in a block of ice and he uh says that you know all of its cells are dead and by all accounts in terms of science it is dead and then he puts it into water it thaws and then it swims out um and so he then does another uh demonstration talking about well i don't remember exactly what he said but they're like not fruit flies but they're like um oh god water tigers or something um they're like little like insects that live in lakes and they're dependent on water they need to be submerged in water and if the lakes dry out or if a lake dries out they die but if it fills with water again they come back to life or something um and all of that's getting at the concept of suspended animation and that's the theme of our episode um so no i'm sorry he says that's the theme of the story we're going to tell you tonight um anyway so uh yeah and then we get into the episode and I will say that I do believe that this is available. I do have a link in the show notes of this episode for it. Um, by the way, um, I'll probably put uh, pictures of that H.G. Wells uh, collection in the show notes of the episode. So check that out because I just think it looks so cool. I'm looking at it on my table right next to me. Anyway, so this episode of Science Fiction Theater was okay. Um, it was a little bit lacking for me. It It did have... The beginning part of the episode is very much contingent on the mystery of the quote unquote frozen, the, the frozen quote unquote specimen that's discovered. And, um, it's not until they bring it 
to get it thawed out and everything that we are shown that is it is a mammoth, which is pretty satisfying. It's pretty cool because it is a massive animal <laughs> um, and they must be, you know, they must have some kind of uh, they they must have had some not issues shooting it. But like, I can't imagine how much uh, of a production that was uh, to have a, a mammoth in it or a, a, an elephant in it. Uh, in the episode, which also, I mean, Twilight Zone ended up doing that in 1959, no, 1960, uh, with a world of his own, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I always get the, that confused with the world of difference anyway, from season one. So, um, it, overall, this episode's kind of dry. They thaw out the mammoth and then they're surprised that it's alive and everything. So it was in suspended animation. They run some tests, which obviously that's one of the things I really like about the show is that it does take the scientific approach to it. Even if the science is 1955 science, it's still, it's still really satisfying to have this kind of science centric sci-fi anthology show at the helm, um, uh, at the forefront with science at the forefront. But, um, it kind of seems like this episode, this episode is less about the, um, the kind of science, uh, science aspect of it and more about the human storytelling that they're doing, like the human connections that they're doing, which is by all accounts, just okay. Um, there are these two doctors that are brought in, these two scientists, uh, Dr. Griffin and I can't remember the guy's name, but Dr. Griffin is, is a woman and it's, it's kind of funny, I guess, in a very dated way that the end of like, like when, uh, when someone's like, well, we can bring in Dr. Griffin. How do you feel about her? And then one guy's like, well, you know, what women scientists, uh, you know, even with that, she's still pretty good or she's still the best in her field. It's, it's, it's like, okay, thanks. 1955. Um, but she is a respected scientist in, in, in the episode, um, and then she's partnered with um, this journalist who everyone kind of has this preconceived idea about that. Oh, he's just a journalist who's going to come water down all of their research and everything, boil it down to a sensationalist article. And it's going to it's not going to advance science or anything. And then he's like, no, 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 I actually have a Ph.D. I'm I, I want to share I want to share science stuff and everything. So, you know, uh you know, don't count your mammoths before they thaw, I guess. Um, anyway, so I'm not going to give much away, but there is a piece of Dr. Griffin's backstory that's revealed kind of later in the episode, um, how she, um, experienced tragedy. Like her, she lost, she had a loss in her family. And I kind of find it interesting that the episode does kind of play with her, using the mammoth as a replacement for that, or maybe not replacement. Replacement is way too, way too harsh of a word, but she connects with the mammoth because she has experienced loss and everything in her life. And it's 1955. So maybe there's a maternal kind of connection there, um, that they're, that they're, uh, painting at there. Uh, but it's, it's pretty, it's, it's fine. It's not like obtrusive or anything, but, I do find it pretty, uh, I, I found that I latched onto that a little bit better than pretty much anything else in the episode. And 
something I, I do feel like it, it, this is one of the weaker written episodes of science fiction theater that I've seen so far, specifically because it is very much um, I don't know. It felt very hurried, very hurried. It felt like in the third act, they they basically. Um, and this is also probably a production issue. Like they probably couldn't, like they couldn't actually do this, uh, do like the things that they, uh, that the story commanded, um, in terms of in camera. But basically the third act opens with them transporting the mammoth to a different location. And then we get, uh, we get Truman Bradley narrating as he does after every every commercial he narrates and gives like an update and everything but in, uh, to usher us into the third act he he says like well you know um the journalist guy was driving and following the route that the mammoth was uh being transported on and uh he saw evidence of an accident and went back and uh and they found Toby the mammoth and they found uh, Dr. Griffin and everything. And it was just like, okay, <laughs> like that just felt like it felt like an, it felt like those like old silent films that have like missing reels and that they would have to like, uh, like one of the very, very, one of the first, uh, Akira Kurosawa movies, um, has like footage missing from it. So like, if you watch it, uh, on DVD or wherever, or on Criterion channel, it like says like, like there's an entire arc in in the movie that's missing because the footage doesn't exist anymore. So it has like a a black screen and it gives an update like oh at this point we're doing this at the, this this character is doing this now, and that's what this felt like. This is that's what this felt like. Um, it just felt like it was very much bringing us uh up to speed on something that happened off screen and is arguably or not arguably the most thrilling aspect of the episode or the most th the the biggest moment of the episode but i don't know the other thing that i kind of had an issue with was again this is a pretty slight episode this is a pretty it's a pretty lacking episode for me and it ends on this just really silly like 50s kind of man and woman kind of thing like i guess i'll kind of spoil it it's just like just like oh well you know we learned this lesson and i think that we can both agree that we should go on a date it's just very like okay whatever um so yeah um the other thing i wanted to bring up is that i felt like I, I do like the idea of the suspended animation and the way that things are frozen in time obviously it was done very well with uh, the first Jurassic Park. I thought that that was uh, the best utilization of that. Um, even though that's not even suspended animation, now that I think about it, they just they just uh, tapped uh, maple trees to get mosquito uh, dinosaur blood from uh, from mosquitoes. So anyway, it's it kind of felt like a little bit of a precursor for um, Jurassic Park, I guess. But I don't think Michael Crichton drew any inspiration from this i think that just the overall concept of suspended animation and genetic mutation and genetic engineering and stuff is was a hot button issue at the time and throughout all of science fiction so anyway uh yeah i guess that's those are my thoughts on dead storage from science fiction theater season one um if you watched that episode let me know what you thought 
Um, I do say that there are much better episodes out there of science fiction theater. Um, yeah. So, okay. That should just about do it for this episode of Anthology. I do want to say, I forgot to mention this at the, at the top, but I do apologize for the lateness of this. I've been trying to release these episodes weekly, but I just got kind of bogged down with, uh, with some, some stuff and everything. So my apologies, but I am still at it. I'm still going to, uh, pump out, uh, episodes as frequently as I can. And, uh, and I hope you guys are enjoying them. Um, Next week on the podcast, we are going to do episode 81, One More Pallbearer, uh, from Twilight Zone Season 3, and Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 25, The Human Equation. So look forward to that. Um, I'm going to start playing myself out, but I do want to say thank you guys so much for listening and for supporting me and everything. Check out Patreon, patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Also, in the realm of science fiction and everything, check out my review with Tiny of Nope, Jordan Peele's new movie, which I thought was excellent um over on obsessive viewer on the obsessive viewer podcast and i also wrote a review on obsessiveviewer.com and uh yeah well thank you guys so much for listening and i'll see you in the next episode and now here's a short clip from our patreon exclusive rss feed to hear the full clip and more exclusive patreon content go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of one dollar per month thank you and enjoy you do feel, or I did feel a sense of, um, sadness when her, uh, when her resignation request was denied, um, because she was just so hopeful. She was so sure. And that is something I find just really, really curious because we don't know if the resignation requests are sent out or, or aren't sent out. Um, we don't know if it's, we don't, we don't know. Um, my estimation or my guess is that they're not and that Lumen is just controlling them and that they, they are their prisoners, basically. But the other kind of darker aspect of that is what if they are sent out and the psychological effect of her resignation request getting denied is pretty big um, because we have this individual who is so certain she knows herself. She's so certain that she knows that her outside self, that the version of her that is outside of work will hear her, uh, her request to resign from the company and recognize that it is her making that choice and would honor that choice. And then to have that just completely deflated and not taken is really, really psychologically demoralizing. And it's really interesting because it, I think that it will have far reaching effects for Heli, maybe because it is something that is, like I said, demoralizing. It's a way to beat her down. It is a way to beat her down and become, and make her become more supplicant and more, uh, just more work focused and everything, because that is literally her, her entire existence in Lumen. This podcast was edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find links to all of our shows at ObsessiveViewer.com slash podcasts. For exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.